Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Lauren Almeida, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Azim Azar, an award-winning tech writer, entrepreneur, and investor. Azim produces Exponential View, which is a newsletter and podcast series that studies the impact of tech on our economy, society, and environment. We talk about his theory of an exponential curve in technological development and the gap that it's creating in the market, as well as our political and social institutions. First of all, thank you very much for, for coming on to the podcast. It's great to speak to you and, and specifically about, about your new book, Exponential. It, it's really fascinating. You know, my takeaway was kind of that I, I think it's somewhat inherent for, for people to kind of pine for, for simpler days, even if, even if they weren't so different to, to the present. But in, in the book, you kind of argue that change is happening so fast because technological development is on an exponential curve and maybe people are right to feel a bit, a bit dizzy about the whole process. Mm. But I suppose a good place to start is if maybe you could explain your theory on, on the exponential curve in, in tech. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. And it's really, uh, it's really exciting to be on the the podcast. I've listened to a few episodes, and I do feel sometimes you've got such great experts uh, on the show. So I'm going to do my best to rise to the level of your of your previous uh, guests as as well. And you know, I think that the central idea behind uh, the book is that uh, we are moving into a a new phase of uh, economic and social and political organisation that is being fundamentally catalyzed by the rate of change of technology uh, development. Uh, And that that uh, new phase uh, has this hallmark that as the technologies develop really quickly, and I call them uh, exponential, exponential rates, they create potentials that, that move faster than human institutions, uh, like our laws, like our companies, like our uh, politics can adapt. And that creates uh, what I call the exponential gap, uh, which is the, the, the thing that, that is common between the tensions that we sometimes see around technology and, and what we might call the real world, right? Why are we um, struggling with uh, fake news and misinformation and disinformation, but we're equally struggling with the power of the world's largest technology companies. We're also worried about the future of the work. work. Uh, and my, my point is, this isn't a coincidence. This is a manifestation of the exponential gap. The fact that finally, the rate of change of technology development has far outstripped the rate with which our current institutions uh, are capable of adapting to it. Focusing kind of the tech and how it developed mm-hmm. i think our readers will be familiar with kind of following the, the tech industry and, mm-hmm. and applying moore's law to to how quickly chips develop but I, I found it interesting that you kind of argue that well first of all moore's law maybe isn't a tech law it's more of a more of a social law and, and maybe why rights law is actually if you could explain yeah. what that is and, and yeah yeah no, absolutely. So, yeah, we're all familiar uh, with with Moore's law, and we've lived um, off its, um, you know, its generosity for for fifty years. The idea that computer chips um, essentially double in power uh, for the same price of pound or dollar um, every couple of years, and it's it's interest rates that, as investors, we could only have fantasized about 45% compounded annualized interest rates is essentially what you get with a silicon chip and have done for for 50 or so years. Um, And I argue that it's not just 
in computation that we're seeing technologies that are improving at exponential rates, um, by which I mean more than 10% uh, compounded improvement on price performance basis every year for decades. I mean, that, that is that the trigger, and any investor knows that you compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe, and a 10% rate um, is really crazy. It means that you double um, every seven years. Now, I identify three drivers for why um, technologies are, are, are now at a point, an, an, an exponential point. The first of those three, and we can dig into the other, other two later, but the first of those three, three is this idea that um, we learn by doing. Ultimately, we get better at the second loaf of sourdough bread we make at home during lockdown. Mm-hmm. We're even better at the fourth. We're even better when we make the eighth. Every doubling of production, we learn how to be more efficient with the mixer and the rise and the use of the flour and, and making less mess in the kitchen. And this is as true in industrial products. And this relationship, which is the idea of a learning rate with every cumulative doubling of production is actually something we've known about since the 1930s because uh, an engineer called Theodore Wright looked at the cost of making airplanes in, in back in 1936. And he discovered that the per unit cost, independent of any kind of improvement in scale because you can buy equipment uh, more cheaply and, and so on, um, the per unit cost of an airframe declined at about 10 to 15% for every doubling of production. And that was because of increased knowledge by the different types of people who are coming together to build the airframe. And that relationship held true for um, for cars as well. Um, and uh, ultimately, it, it gives rise to this thing called the learning curve or the experience curve. Um, and that is at really fundamentally at the heart of um, why technologies find themselves on a particular exponential uh, curve. But it's not true for every technology. It's true for certain types of technologies. and But it happens to be true for a set of very, very wide ranging general purpose technologies that, that define the exponential age. Turning to, to companies, looking at the, the exponential curve, we're talking about exponential growth in tech. You kind of, it's hard not to think of companies like Amazon or Apple, mm-hmm. Facebook, Microsoft, and you know a lot, a lot of these companies that their share price also kind of mimics the, the exponential <laughs> curve. I'm wondering, do, do you think these? Do you kind of view these companies as beneficiaries of natural processes like like rights law, or do you think of them as as drivers of exponential growth as well? Well, if that's a really great question. Um, you, you know, these are the economy is a is a complex system, which means that it's got lots of independent parts to it with feedback loops. Uh, and so if you think about rights law, um, which it, which predicts semiconductor performance better than Moore's law, for example, it's related to the volume of production. So as a company like Apple, well, the reason Apple can shift a smartphone in like the iPhone in the first place, which it did, you know, more than 10 years ago, was because of the cumulative learning that meant chips were cheap enough to put them in small devices. Mm -hmm. Um, And once they were cheap enough to put them in small devices, more and more people could buy them. And so more people did buy them, which increased the demand for them, which pushed pushed us further down that learning curve. So there is a, a positive feedback loop that means that of course, these companies are beneficiaries of the core technologies, but they are also driving the innovation that drives down that drives down cost. Um, and in fact, that that really takes us to. 
the other two drivers of the the exponential age, the things that that are making these technologies exponential. You know, the first is right store, which is learning. Uh, the second is the idea of um, standardization and combination. So the as the technologies become uh, more and more mature, we've ended up standardizing them, which means that the you know the the, the chip that used to live in your um, graphics card of your of your computer is now used by people in artificial intelligence research. The, the fact that um, we have standard data interfaces, which means that if there's a breakthrough in um, bioinformatics uh, databases, that can be applied to the big data for Internet of Things in a completely different um, sector. The fact that one of the reasons we have such low-cost satellites at the moment is we we standardized on a on a thing called a nanosat that the nanosats were able to take advantage of breakthroughs in semiconductors in other parts of the industry nothing to do with the space industry and that idea of standardization uh, and combination um really really uh is one reason another reason why these technologies find themselves uh, on this fast accelerating curve but th- but the third reason is that we have these networks now of both of information, the the internet being a great example, the fact that um, uh, because we can share breakthroughs very quickly, positive experiences can be copied rapidly across industry. You know, you you discover that a retailer in uh, in France has come up with some new uh, marketing technique. It's written about. And then a car company in America can go off and, and duplicate it. I mean, just sort of in extremist as, as examples. And that's where where we think about um, someone like Apple. When they first launched um, the iPhone, they launched it in one store. When they launched the iPhone 12, they launched it in about 300 different cities around the world because the, glo- the global network allows them to ship physical products to lots and lots of markets, which then accelerates the rate with which they can sell these devices, which means they can then invest more in R&D the next time round, which means they're going through the learning curve again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, they are both the beneficiaries and the drivers uh, of it. And it's interesting that point about standardization being a key reason why these companies have been able to grow at such rates. I think interoperability as well and, and standardization of how consumers kind of access these these companies' products is perhaps a lack of standardization is was why they've gotten so big because they sort of create these walled gardens yeah. specific universes but makes it very difficult for consumers to switch and again that i suppose that kind of feeds into the exponential gap between antitrust law and competition law and how big these these companies are yeah i mean it's really it, it it's such an important point that you've made there so of course you know the internet was the ultimate interoperable system i mean it was the first system that was designed to be as interoperable um, uh, as, as, as anything. I mean, it is a network of networks. That's what internet stands for. It's a sort of the, the, this meta thing that sits between a set of different networks. And the only reason it works is because um, there are protocols that explain why when I send you an email, my server knows how to talk to your server and no money changes hands. Um, and that has been the sort of foundational basis for the multi-trillion dollars worth of value creation that has taken place in the traditional this IT tech industry. Um, what, what, of course, has, has happened has been that starting um, 
well, I mean, it started a bit further further back, but but really about ten years ago, the large networks, um, Google and and Amazon and Facebook, started to recognise the importance of um, uh, of creating essentially domains of their own that they could exploit. So people forget that up until about two thousand and eleven or two thousand and twelve you could reasonably freely access the Facebook newsfeed without using the Facebook web app or, or uh, you could use what's called an API. You could just connect to it and you could look at the content that was on there. And the, the, the reason that companies stopped doing that and it was Facebook and it was LinkedIn and then it was, was others is that they, they didn't want their customers easily being able to move from one network to another. Now, if you're in, in the UK, you'll remember a world where you couldn't carry your mobile phone number when you left, you know, Vodafone to go to what was then called um, O2. Uh, you, you had to give up your phone number and get a new phone number. Uh, and what ended up happening was a regulator mandated something called number portability. There was a time when, um, when you know, anyone over the age of 40 will, will remember this. You could only send SMS messages to people who were on the same operator as you. And the reason was not technical. The reason was this kind of mean-spirited commercial thinking, which was essentially to say, I will encourage you to get your friends on my, my network mm-hmm. if you could only SMS them. And then again, when they were forced to open up and interoperate, the SMS traffic per user in the UK um, exploded. And it, it was very, very good news for the operators because it was one of their highest margin products. Of course, then, you know, different forces came into play and SMS got bundled and then it got replaced by WhatsApp and so on. But mm-hmm. the point was interoperability grew the market. Now, what has happened in um, in the technology industry largely has been a, a sense of enclosure of your customer mm-hmm. base. So if you are on Facebook, you can't move off Facebook without losing the ability to connect with all the people you were connected with on on Facebook. Mm -hmm. If you're a driver on Uber, you can't go to a rival network and take with you your Uber rating and Mm -hmm. everything that you've accumulated to that rival network. It's as if you went to, you know, you went to university and the university said, well, we've got relationships with these three employers and your graduate degree is only recognised by them. And if you decide you want to go somewhere else, you know, we're not going to give you any credit for it. I mean, so it's a slight absurdity. So I think one of the things that I recommend in the book is to say that, you know, interoperability is a very, very powerful way of closing down these walled gardens. I say it's kryptonite to the network effects Mm. of these walled gardens. Um, It's undesirable for them in the short term because it has some technical cost and it means customers could easily leave if they decide they don't like using you know, whichever service it is, they could pick up with their preferences and, and still, you know, retain access to their friends. Um, but what we've seen in the past is that interoperability has actually grown markets and made them larger and made them more efficient and released kind of consumer welfare. So, I mean, for me, it's something that we should campaign for uh, and ask the competition authorities uh, to look at more heavily because it creates a more dynamic market. Mm, yeah. And why do you think it is that, that companies so far have resisted? I mean, if, if there is this precedent of 
for example, the, the phone market and that increasing mm-hmm. the size of the market and also consumer welfare more generally. Why do you think mm-hmm. that, that these companies are going to resist to this concept of interoperability or, or is Silicon Valley just mean-spirited? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, so I don't think Silicon Valley is, is mean-spirited because there are lots of examples of highly open platforms and services uh, that come out of uh, Silicon Valley and, uh, you know, the core technology protocols, um, uh, many of them are like that. Um, it, it's more that for a handful of these companies, it's it's a, it's a short-term competitive advantage um, and short-term by which, I mean, you've been able to build Facebook, which is a multi-hundred billion dollar business, yeah. uh, right, uh, as, a, as a result of closing off access to uh, to the network. So they'll give you lots of arguments. They'll say, I mean, I spoke with Nick Clegg, who's the head of PR at Facebook a few um, weeks ago. And he said, look, interoperability, you know, roughly, you can see why it's attractive, but technically, it's very difficult to do. Mm. Uh, but I don't think it's a technical difficulty that was the the issue. Um, I think the issue was people recognize that the network effect, um, which is essentially that you know, the more people who join my product, make the more valuable it is for all the other people who use use the product. And that's certainly the case for communications networks. Um, they recognize that the network effect, which was the source of their value, was, was also the way they could create um, a, a moat, a sort of a traditional economic moat around their business. And so they came up with arguments as to why they were going to essentially reduce um, the amount of interoperability. And those arguments were historically things like, um, you know, the one that Twitter used was, well, if um, if anyone can access my, the, the, you know, the, the stream of tweets through any kind of application, not the official Twitter uh, app, they might not get a good customer experience mm-hmm. because some shonky third-party developer might have written a rubbishy app. And that was the argument um, but it's not re- it's not a real argument. I mean, the real argument is that you wanted control of the network, you wanted control of the advertising channel, um, and and you didn't want customers to be able to leave you because the source of your economic advantage was this moat built by the the network effect. So, so I think now these networks are big. It will be expensive for them to implement interoperability. But let's face it. I mean, they're pretty profitable businesses and uh it's hard to believe it's going to cost you know all of their profit uh to yeah. to build that um that those capabilities so you know you know i think i think it's something that's really important i think it's really important because um you if you believe the general idea that in an economy that has a small number of very very powerful companies is less dynamic than an economy that has you know more vibrant sectors and if you believe that a society that has a small number of extremely powerful, unaccountable entities, whether those are companies or governments or you know any anything else, churches, if you think those are not desirable, then thing that then finding ways of reducing the inherent power of these very large companies, whether it's for economic reasons or other reasons, it is is an imperative. And I think that we mostly agree that large amounts of unchecked power um, are ge- generally unhelpful. And they're kind of unhelpful for investors as well. I found it really interesting as well, you kind of reference the political context in which in which these companies were able to grow to the size that they are. I mean, you write kind of from the late 70s onwards, it was free market capitalism that could 
unleash the power of, of exponential tech. Looking at antitrust and competition law scene at the moment, it seems as though there might potentially be breakups in the way or kind of laws that would limit the, the power of, of these big companies. I mean, if if these kind of big tech companies are reined in or in or in some way broken up, does that does that risk kind of flattening the the exponential curve? Um, it's a it's a really good good question. I mean, the historical context is really is really important um, because the in the in the seventies there was this bonfire of regulation. You know, you start with Milton Friedman, you go to Robert Bork, and um, you get into all of this being implemented, not just by by Reagan, but sort of more broadly, uh, you know, deep in the American uh, government, um, and it it happened at a slightly um, odd time because it happened at a time when um, the nature of competition was was changing because you were getting these companies that I describe as exponential age companies. They don't look like your traditional industry linear industries mm-hmm. um, that we saw, uh, you know, in the in the past. So the timing was a little bit. Um, I mean, it's, it, it was funny. You sort of sent the fire the, the fire engine home, you know, just as the arsonist showed up, as it were, um, and uh, and it, it has it has resulted in um, in some of these uh, I- issues where the companies now are have have argued that it's through us that these benefits are delivered, and exclusively through us that these benefits of technological advancement um, are delivered. Uh, but the thing that I think we we've started to see is that um, if you if you see how these large companies have behaved, they have hired um, really really extensively. There's been a brain drain from academia to you know the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons of this world, and that comes at a cost because what what the research shows is that when re- when science moves from being in the academe into the corporation it becomes very, very narrow, uh, narrowly focused on a corporation's own uh, goals and objectives and time horizons uh, start to uh, shorten. Now, that said, if you look at a Google or if you look at an Amazon, these companies invest in R&D in ways that traditional firms simply do not into the multi-billions of dollars a year. I mean, I, I looked at, um, I think it was Tesco and Tesco had an R&D lab in 2016 budget of a few hundred thousand pounds, um, or they said into the six figures, right? Whereas Amazon was spending tens of billions of dollars. Um, And, you know, there are breakthroughs in robotics and uh, quantum computing and semiconductors and self-driving cars and um, long-term clean renewable energy storage that are coming out out of Google. So, yes, these companies do incredible commercialization, R&D, and so on. However, however, the, 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 we have to bear in mind two other things. You know, the first is that the longer term data that, that independent academics um, have reviewed tends to show that once research gets tied to commercial goals in this way, it tends to narrow in scope. And, that ha- and many of the things that we are benefiting from today, whether it is mRNA vaccines or semiconductors actually emerged from research that had much longer term scope. Um, and the second thing is just coming back to that question of, um, of power and of, of scale. Um, 
do you really want to have a uh, uh, can you really have a an accountable and dynamic uh, economy if every service is somehow rooted through five or six very very large companies uh, mm-hmm. that are that are you know possibly you know owned and governed elsewhere and I think that that's problematic as well. I suppose from from an investor perspective, everyone wants to get in on a on a technology before everyone else realizes that it's actually amazing and going to change the world. Um, is it possible to kind of identify an exponential technology or one that's on an exponential tra- trajectory before before it really takes off, but before it's kind of known outside of outside of the industry that's that's creating it? Uh, that's a really really great question. The time it takes for something interesting to to exist and people discovering it is um, is shortening because there's more awareness and there are more tools to help people track um, these technologies. I think for a traditional investor, the, the the problem you have is that it's a really specialist role. It's the job of the venture capitalist to figure that out, and they are the ones who are trawling the university labs and trying to understand these these technologies. So if you look at, there's been a spate this year of um, companies going public in the intersection between uh, biology and computing. So this is a really exciting area. Um, You know, we've been able to to come up with more theory in biology, well, you know, beyond just the idea of the the gene. Um, And we've been able to then apply engineering methods and the, the benefits of Moore's law to a more quantitative approach to to this. And so the consequence has not just been things like these RNA-based vaccines, it's been um, new types of um, methods of creating materials using genetically modified organisms. There's been um, drug discovery uh, as well. There's been a a lot of activity in the sort of SPAC world taking these companies public. But if you look at when they were spotted by investors, it was really a decade ago. Now, the question is, is all of the upside taken at the point at which a venture capitalist invests? And the answer is, well, no, absolutely not. You know, when, you know, Jinko Bio, which is doing a multi-billion dollar SPAC or, or may have done by the time the podcast comes out, the first investment round would have been in the matter of a few million. Now, a traditional investor can't get access to that early risk easily because the best deep tech funds are... Um, heavily oversubscribed and you need to be a foundation to get into them and you need to be able to write a million dollar or five million dollar check so it's pretty hard so then I think the question is well where do you where do you end up playing Um, and there are now more and more um, ETFs that allow you to do that I mean there's uh, obviously the big one um, in all of this is is ARC um, Kathy Wood's uh, platform which you know she and I spoke three or four years ago on my podcast and her argument was um, there's still a ton of um, of, of uh, sort of return available in public in- innovation because the markets are undervaluing it, and that was her her argument. And you know, she, her funds did very well for the three years after that. And of course, there's been the, the sort of market turn against tech earlier this year. But there are ETFs, and there are increasingly um, ETFs that are more specialist and trying to get you exposure to these emerging themes, you know, like in space or in 3D printing or in future of food, um, which I think retail investors and small scale investors can get access to. But I think that the the problem that you then have on on that front is 
you actually have to dig a, a layer below those ETFs to say, what are you actually buying? So, I mean, I looked at, uh, you know, one recently that was a sort of sustainable, uh, sorry, a future of food ETF. So the whole idea behind future of food is that it's meat, you know, it's alternative meats, it's plant-based proteins, um, it is, you know, regenerative agriculture. And when you actually look at the universe of public stocks they can back, um, it's a lot of it happens to be big food companies mm-hmm. because you actually just don't have the availability. So as a as a smaller, more retail investor, I think it's it's harder. You may have to just wait for these themes to um, these themes to get bigger. Uh, but the other question then is, what do you what me- what mechanism do you look look for? And one of the critical things about exponential technologies is that their, their, it's their rate of growth or the rate of growth of the rate of growth that is interesting, not the absolute level. Mm-hmm. And so the big distinction between a kind of public markets investor and a private markets investor in my sort of really naive way of looking at this is that a public market investor has to, sort of goes off and looks at the actuality and they say, well, you know, are revenues at five billion or not? Mm-hmm. Whereas a, 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 a venture investor will go and say, you know, did revenues, are revenues growing at 25% per month, even if they're only a million dollars a month, mm-hmm. right, a tiny number, and you look, you're looking at the growth rate. And I think you can start to spot these things, you know, you can spot these things around, um, uh, around, say, for example, vegetarian food, the number of people who claim to be vegetarian uh, today is multiples higher than it was in 2016, it may still be a tiny market, but it's been a 5x or a 4x or a 6x improvement in four or five years. And you don't see that in other markets. So the thing that I look for is I look for early signals of really, really um, discontinuous uh, discontinuous growth. Um, and can we do we think that those things can uh, can progress? So when I looked at lithium ion batteries uh, four or five years ago and their connection to electric vehicles, what the analysts of that field were telling me was that there's a 17 to 18% compounded decline in price every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you only have to look at that and say, well, that means the price is essentially going to halve every you know, three or four years. And that's pretty powerful. So those, those are the types of things that I look for. But then the question is, can you actually get exposure to them as a, as a retail investor? Um, and I'm not necessarily sure you, you'll find it that easy. I also wanted to ask, you know, kind of the, the flip side of, of exponential growth from an investor perspective. It's you know, incredibly exciting to, to look at trends like biotech and, and food and stuff like that. But um, there's also the flip side of kind of the destabilizing effects of, of exponential tech um, and growth. And uh, yeah, I was just interested to kind of hear your view on, for example, like energy and manufacturing, solar energy and 3D printers and that kind of giving perhaps taking away the traditional power of some states and some institutions that you know, kind of traditional positions in the global norm and in trade. What, what do you think that means for, for companies, for big companies like Aramco or Shell or big manufacturing companies that kind of have that benefit of scale, but without the, the gravity that affects um, the likes of Facebook and Apple? How can you tell which ones will be able to, to survive in, in that period of change? You know, to give you a flavor of just how destabilizing it, it, it could be, solar power is so evenly distributed around the world. So the sunniest country in the world gets four times as much sun as the least sunny, which is not, not the UK, by the way, it's Norway. Um, and uh, the, 
But in oil distribution, the most oil-rich country has a million times more oil than the least oil-rich country. And so when the shift comes, it'll come quite quite vigorously. I mean, I think betting against a particular technology trend doesn't really make that much sense, but there are also other factors in play. So we've just had the uh, the Saudis say they're going to, you know, they're going to extract every last molecule of oil. Um, and that in and of itself is, is, you know, could be something they do. And if the oil price goes up, it's something they might be able to afford to do. But, but then you get companies like, um, you know, the Spanish company Iberdola, uh, which is, you know, transitioning across to being a renewables company very, very effectively. And I think it's becoming increasingly clear that oil companies may have significant roles to play in um, in carbon capture and sequestration because they know how to, you know, run these big sort of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, th- I think the, what you then have to figure out is, which of these companies have actually got credible stories um, when it comes to making that transition and credible management? Um, and how realistically are they are they making it? I mean, I, I'm, I personally um, don't really uh, buy that that they have a clear story about how they manage that transition. I mean, I think in 20 or 30 or 40 years time, the oil companies will make their money from pushing carbon into the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what they'll do. The carbon that they put back, put into the atmosphere, they will suck out of the atmosphere and stick it back into these wells. Um, and that will be their business because they're, they're good at it. The question is what, ha- you know, as from an investor perspective is, you know, does one have, how do you think, what do you think is going to happen in the next five to 10 years with these companies? Mm-hmm. And what does that transition actually end up looking like? And um, my own view is that um, the, the, um, the, the, the rate with which uh, oil and gas will start to look like uh, some kind of sort of horrible lurgy um, will speed up it'll speed up because the climate effects that we've seen today it'll speed up because of the generational effects um it'll speed up because the technologies are getting um the the technologies that replace them are getting so much more mature it'll speed up because i'm yet to meet someone who's driven an electric car who ever says i really want to go back to my petrol car Mm -hmm. um and so because of that i think that their cultural transition needs to happen much much faster than they potentially uh, they potentially realise, uh, and so, and and then finally, you know, global finance has really, really woken up. I mean, it started with the reinsurers about fifteen years ago, starting to think about climate risk, and now, you know, you have um, central bankers and others. I'm not talking about ESG on on in of itself. I'm saying they're pricing climate risk in to mm-hmm. to businesses. And so that means your cost of capital is going up and that's actually going to impact your bottom line. So so I find it a really hard um, balance to figure out. I personally um, av- avoid that, that, that old world group of companies because I think they have quite a messy um, stage uh, to, to walk through. But then there are clear examples of firms that have done quite well out of this. As I said, I pull out Iberdola as an example. I suppose that the growth rates are really interesting to look at and incredibly enticing, but I suppose the 
there are some black sheep and maybe some trends that call themselves exponential or or maybe people call them exponential are there any trends that you're that you're dubious about actually it's whether or not it's actually on exponential trajectory one of the things that i wanted to do was uh try to explain the mechanisms uh to to readers about both the mechanisms of the underlying technology and then the mechanisms of how the technologies turn into the, the products that we, we know and why it's even possible that the products can grow as quickly as they they can. Um, and the reason I did that is for exactly the point that you've just made up made, which is that anyone can say this is the next best greatest thing. And if this is going exponential, this is going to the moon or this is going vertical. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the test needs to be um, uh can we can we bring it back to understand exactly why or why not that is that is the case and it's easier um, in some cases than it is in others. I mean, during the course of between putting the proposal together, writing the first draft of, of the book, and now that when the book comes out, TikTok went from not existing to suddenly showing up and being quite fast growing to then being the US government's enemy number one, mm-hmm. to in the last week after the book's gone to press, becoming the first app outside of Facebook to be downloaded by 3 billion people. And so you see these things appear from, from nowhere. And, and, and yet you also get things that show up and disappear very, very quickly. Um, and the way what you have to do is you have to figure out, is this a, is this a kind of a market risk question, which TikTok really is, right? So TikTok success or failure was really going to be about whether the consumers in the market took took to it and stuck with it. And they, they did with TikTok. They did less so with this audio social network called Clubhouse, which is out of the, the US. Um, is it to do with the, the product or is it to do with the core technology? And can we see a path through? And that's a very different set of risks towards that idea of exponentiality so when i look at some of the uh some of the core technologies for example um compute do i think that businesses will be able to get hold of more and more computation at these exponentially increasing rates um over the coming 5 10 15 years yes i do and i come up with a very very clear um uh, uh rationale as to why that is um could i could i claim with any certainty um, that X app or Y app or A product or B product is going to say take the same um, trajectory. No, I, I couldn't because we don't really know why people buy products and why they stick with apps um, when they when they get started. I suppose that more discerning view towards exponential growth is, is helpful for investors rather than just being yeah enticed. And sometimes, yeah, there is a risk of being enticed by really high percentages and not looking much beyond that but yeah that's uh, yeah really helpful but it's really been great having you on great discussion thank you very much for, for coming on again no, no it's my pleasure and um you know they if they look if they're looking for the book um you know you can just find it at the url exponential ashbook.com that's exponential book.com and then you can kind of click through to the right link from there for you know whatever flavor you like yeah, brilliant, lovely. I definitely would recommend the book to anyone who's interested. So yeah, great, great read, really, yeah, richly sourced and yes, brilliant. Thank you, Lauren. 
The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.